So we're beginning a series over the next four gatherings, I guess you could say, um, where we're just going to be looking at Luke 2, um, verse 10 and 11. And so let me read those verses now. I'm going to begin in verse 8, actually. And this is just the account of the shepherds in the field on the night that Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Fear not, I bring you good news. That's really all we wanted to talk about today. I want to give you guys a biblical overview, a biblical understanding of fear. You know, fear is a powerful, powerful emotion. Technically, it occurs as a result of threats that are perceived to be uncontrollable or unavoidable. That's what the technical definition of fear is. And, you know, I'm sure that if we all sat around later today and we talked about what are the deepest, darkest fears in your life, we probably would get to know each other really quickly, right? But since I have a microphone, you just get to hear about mine, all right? In all, in all honesty, you know, growing up, I would say that I was a very nervous, kind of worry-wart personality. My parents maybe could, could um, prove that with a thumbs up or, or say they didn't notice that about me. But I remember, um, you know, we, where we grew up, um, we had a basement, like a full basement that was underground, and once you turned those lights off, it was like, you better sprint up those stairs because something was going to get you. I don't know what it was, but it was going to get you. And I remember turning off that light and I had to get up the stairs as quickly as possible. I remember, I'm sure you guys did this too, when you, you're standing in your doorway and you're trying to figure out, like, how far away is my bed? Can I make it to the bed without walking next to the bed because I am base I saw a pet cemetery and that little kid gauge with the scalpel he's going to attack my ankle I know it or for example just being worried about different things if your parents say I'm going to be home at 2 and it's 2:45 then you're like that's it they're gone they left me they went to Mexico but, you know, those, that's when you're a little kid. You're a little kid, you're afraid of the dark. Actually, I'm going to tell you guys in a minute what most little kids are actually afraid of, and it's going to blow your mind. Um, but now, as an adult, I no longer fear the dark, or I don't have to run up the stairs. You know, I don't get in bed, and then I make Gina turn off the light, so I'm safe. Those sorts of things. But And maybe, maybe other men in the room can, you know agree with what I'm about to say, and you can just give me like kind of like a Tim the Toolman tell, like, oh, if you agree, you know, because we're men. Um, but I think now, you know, when I think about what am I afraid of, it's very much like that final scene of Saving Private Ryan, right? Tell me I was worth it. Can anybody, other, other men in the room relate to that? It's like you just kind of glory Valhalla, you know what I mean? Like, I just want to make sure that it was worth I appreciate you, Victor. You know, just the fact that you don't want to have a life of normalcy or complacency. I think most men, especially, they want to be made for something bigger than themselves. You know, I think this is why there was that age-old stereotype of the glory of dying in battle. 
And the idea of just kind of the simple, complacent life scares me. Now, that doesn't mean that I sit around and I say, what do I want to be afraid of? Because as we know, fear is far less rational than that. Fear is something that is deeply embedded within you. It is incredibly visceral. It's not logical. It's not rational. It's not biblical, right? Just because I have that fear doesn't mean that it's a biblical fear and I'm trying to justify it. Though your fears are disconnected from the things that you choose. Um, In 2022, this year, they interviewed however many people to figure out what are Americans afraid of, all right? And you want to know what the top three fears are? Number one fear, politics, including political corruption and threat of war between nations, nuclear war, what's Russia going to do, you know, these sorts of things. Number two, sickness and death, especially of your loved ones. My loved ones are going to get sick. My loved ones are going to die. And the third one is economic catastrophe. That's what most normal humans are afraid of, not me, right? Um, But what about kids? You want to know what kids are afraid of? Top three fears? They're all related to the toilet. I'm not kidding you. Fear of the toilet overflowing? Number one fear. Fear of pain and going to the bathroom? Number two fear. And fear that bugs are going to bite you when you sit down. Which, if you're honest and you saw arachnophobia, that was a fear of mine for a while. Okay? But then also just being afraid of the dark, afraid of monsters, being alone. But the point is this. Fear does not make sense. Right? But it's very real to us. And of course, fear changes on your age. I doubt many of you are afraid of the toilet overflowing on a daily basis. Right? That's probably not your number one fear in life, but fear is hardwired into who we are. Now, if you go to a secular psychologist, they're going to tell you that fear is based on an evolutionary progression of fight or flight response, and I'm here to tell you that's not true. That's not the biblical definition of fear. That is man's definition of trying to explain something he doesn't understand. And so what is fear actually all about? Because we shouldn't just listen to everything psychologists and scientists say, especially when the Bible has a lot to say on the subject, okay? And so my hope today is to give you a 30,000-foot view of the biblical view of fear. So where does fear come from? Well, there was no fear in the original creation of the world. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, there's no fear. God said it's good. Fear is not good. And then when God created Adam and Eve, he said this is very good. There's no fear. And then we read in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They said we're going to take matters into our own hands and we're going to eat from the tree the knowledge in good and evil because then we will be aware, we will be like God, you know, and so that's what they do. And this is what it says in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, I want you to notice for a second, God says, or Adam says, I hid. And God said, why did you hide? And Adam doesn't say, I ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and I know that's the one thing you commanded me not to do. And so I was very afraid of punishment because I knew that if you found out I broke your one rule, you were going to be upset and disappointed. That's not what he says. What did he say? He says, I was afraid because I was naked. It's not really what you expect him to be afraid of, is it? I mean, it's not the first thing that would have come to my mind. He said, why was Adam afraid? If you didn't carefully read the text, you probably would say, because he knew he did something wrong. But no, Adam is afraid because he was naked. And this is what I want you to know as the first concept here, of, I think, right? I'm not a psychologist. It's just from reading the Bible. The first reason that Adam was afraid was not because he was, was, he was afraid of punishment. It was because he felt vulnerable. He felt vulnerable. For the first time in his life, Adam feels vulnerable. Prior to this point, Adam is trusting God for everything. All of his needs, he has no worries, he has no concerns, he doesn't, doesn't bother him that he's naked. And now, in a moment's notice, everything has changed, and he is ashamed of the fact that he's naked, and he's aware of his vulnerability to an irrational way where he puts a fig leaf over himself as if that's going to protect him from something. He feels vulnerable. See, I think vulnerability, biblically, is at the core of fear. If you think about those big three fears from adults in 2022, I cannot control whether or not Putin is nuts and starts a, a war, a nuclear war. Therefore, I am, what, vulnerable. I have no power over that. Um, we're all vulnerable. I can't stop whether or not my, my kids get sick. I can't stop whether or not I get hit by a car. I can't stop whether or not someone I love dies. I have no power. Anybody who's actually seen someone go through illness, you realize how little power you actually are, have because we are what? Vulnerable. We can't stop worrying about the economy or the, the economy is going to collapse. There's nothing I can do about it because this guy who he's pulling a string over here and he's doing this and I have not, there's nothing I can do to stop it. I feel so vulnerable. Will I have enough? Will I save enough? Will I make enough? Do I have enough MREs? Right? All of these types of things. Vulnerable. Even if you think about the fear that I shared, you know, this fear of making sure that it's worth it, that saving private Ryan fear, it's I'm vulnerable because I know my flesh is weak and I know I cannot live a life that makes me worthy of what Jesus did. That makes me vulnerable. Are you guys following me? I would ask you to really think about your most visceral fears. If I'm honest, I don't even think, the three fears that people mentioned you know, the fear of like, oh, what about uh, politics and what about the economy? Those aren't even the real fears. There's fears that are deeper than those fears. The fear that I shared, I mean, the fear of the economy is like surface level fear. Fear that I'm not going to be enough to provide for my family, that's real fear. That's deep fear. 
right? That, that goes right to the heart of, am I enough as a man? Am I enough as a dad? Those sorts of things. That's so much deeper than just, well, what if the economy collapses? Those are the deep fears, those deep vulnerabilities that we have. And so, you know, as I'm going through this, ask yourself what that is, because everybody's got a different fear. It manifests itself in different ways. You see, the fall in the garden has placed every human being in a vulnerable state. Adam and Eve did have some knowledge of good and evil. Now, after eating the tree, for the fruit of the tree, they did have some knowledge of good and evil, but they had no power to do anything about it. They had no wisdom to comprehend what that good and evil was, and they had no way of really knowing if the choices that they made now were going to somehow turn into good and evil in the long run. And so it was a false illusion of knowledge of good and evil. The only thing that they actually knew in that moment was just how fragile and vulnerable the created flesh was, which is why the psalmist says, man is but dust. And you know our state, you know our frailty, God. Fear is rooted in vulnerability. It's the fear of that Adam and Eve have after they sin. That Vulnerability is what Cain feels after he kills his brother and God banishes him. And, God, and what does Cain say? It's too much for me to go out in the wilderness all by myself. I'm going to be vulnerable. It's the fear that Abram has when he tells Abimelech that Sarai is his sister because he feels vulnerable and he's afraid they're going to kill him and steal his wife. It's the fear that Moses had when everybody found out that he actually murdered that taskmaster and he runs because of it. It's the fear the disciples have when they are experienced fishermen and now they're on the boat and it's about to be capsized and they wake up Jesus and say, don't you care that we're about to die? Don't you re realize how vulnerable we are? And it's the fear these shepherds had, these dirty, mangy shepherds, when the heavenly welcome party shows up at their front door to carol. See, fear began at the fall, and it's when we, that's when we realize our vulnerability. And so the question is this, what is God's response to fear? So Genesis chapter 3 is the first time the word fear is used in the Bible. Second, in all of its forms, you know, there's various ways that, you know, they have, you know, to be afraid, fear, those sorts of things. So the second time it's used is in Genesis 15. Second time it's used is in Genesis 15. In Genesis 14, Abram just had a ridiculous experience. He went to war against a bunch of kings of Sodom to rescue his cousin Lot. He rescues his cousin, and then after the battle is won, this king of, of peace, this king of righteousness called Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He comes, and, and, and Abram pays a tithe to him, thanking him for all that's happened. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram, and he gives him this, this great blessing. But what we see in the beginning of chapter 15 is the beginning of chapter 15 begins with the author telling us that Abram is afraid. Abram is afraid, even though he just had victory, even though he just got blessed by the king of peace, right? He's afraid because although God gave him a mighty promise in chapter 12, right, 
God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. Abram has yet to see any of it come to fruition. And so Abram is afraid. This is what we read in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and he said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram is afraid because he's vulnerable, because he has no power in his own ability to enact any of the promises that God said was going to happen. He's been trying to have a son for a long time. He's got no kids. He's having no success in anything that he does. And so he says, well, I don't know if this is really going to happen. I'm very vulnerable in my state to enact any of these promises. And God says to him, fear not. And the reason that's important is this. God's response to our fear, God's response to our vulnerability throughout the scriptures is to make promises. Because of the fall, we're vulnerable, but God's response to our vulnerability, to our fear, is fear not plus a promise. Matter of fact, almost every time in the scripture that God says, do not fear or do not be afraid or fear not, it's followed by a promise. Genesis 26, 24 after Abram dies, and now it's Isaac, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abra father, of your father Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake, reinforcing the covenant of chapter 12. Exodus 14, 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see before you, you shall never see again. And Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. And if you were going to go, you were going to look up that phrase, fear not, what you would see is a long list of promises that God gives. They're either situational or they're covenantal. See, God's response to your fear is not to call you a baby, not to tell you that you're a little wimp and you need to suck it up, God's response is not to mock your insecurities and say only losers feel that way. You're really afraid a spider's going to bite you on the bum when you sit down, you big baby. That's not what God does. He doesn't dismiss you as a child who thinks there's an alligator under his bed. That's not what God does. God's response to your vulnerability, God's response to your fear is to replace it with promise. That's what he does. Do not fear. I have good news. He condescends to us. That's what the incarnation is all about. God taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. God condescending to our level and saying, fear not, I'm your shield. Fear not, I'm your strong tower. Fear not, hide in the shadow of my wings. Fear not, the Lord your God goes before you to fight for you. Fear not, the Lord your God is mighty to save. His arms are not short. His hand is not weak. Fear not, fear not fear not, and then he gives promise. See, God's response to your fear is to replace it with promise. And when vulnerable people hear promises, it places our hearts at ease, right? I'll give you some examples. The politician says, I promise you I will not let Russia drop a nuclear weapon. If you elect me, I'll keep you safe. The homeopath says, I promise you, if you eat this way, you won't get sick. 
The doctor says, I promise you, I can fix that ailment. The broker says, you can trust me with your investments. Even if things collapse, you'll be taken care of. The parent says, I'll keep you safe. Of course I won't die. See, vulnerable people need promises. They give us security when we feel like we're in a dark place. They make us feel for a moment less vulnerable. But here's the truth about every example I gave. They're all empty, false promises. They're all empty. They're all false. Empty promises made by vulnerable people to vulnerable people. And we have no power to actually have them come to pass. I can't guarantee to my kids that I'm going to be there tonight. And neither can you. See, we have no power at the end of the day, no power to make our heart pump, no power to make our lungs work. We have no power. But when God makes a promise, he can actually keep it. And it's only when we trust in his promises that our vulnerability is actually safe and secure. And so God can say to Bill... Me, in Luke chapter 12, 32, Bill, you don't need to worry about whether you're good enough. You don't need to worry about whether you've done enough. You don't need to worry about whether or not you lived a worthy life because Luke 12, 32, fear not, little sheep. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. It's my good pleasure to give it to you despite the fact that you can't earn it. You see, and when we trust in God's promises, something happens to us. Something changes in us. And fascinatingly, we have Genesis 3, Genesis 15, and then Genesis 22. So Genesis 22, God told Abram, look, trust me, you're going to have a son and, and Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, now they trust God. God gives them a son. His name is Isaac, which means son of laughter because they laughed when God said you're going to have a kid. And Sarah's like, I'm as good as dead. Like, I'm 100 years old, bro. And um, she has a son. And after all of that waiting, God tells Abraham to do something that seems ridiculous and it seems pagan. And it seems like, why would God do this at all? And God says, Abraham, he says, here I am. And he says, take your son. He says, which one? Your only son. Which one? The one that you love. And he says, and I want you to sacrifice him. And so Abraham goes and he grabs his son and he grabs the wood and he grabs the flint and the steel and he goes up to the top of this, this hill and he bounds his son with ropes, and he puts the, the wood on him, and he is about ready to light the match. Now, why would Abraham do this? Well, Abraham knew he was vulnerable, and he knew he was unable to fulfill the promises of God, and that's why he trusted God. He figured God had taken him this far, and he's, he's, everything that he's promised, God has done, and so I know my son is vulnerable, I know that he could die tomorrow, regardless of whether or not I sacrifice him. I know that a lion or a tiger or a bear could come and get him. Oh, my. He said, I know I can't guarantee anything. And so he trusts God. And then right before the knife comes down, God stops him. He says, Abraham. Abraham. He says, I'm busy. He says, Abraham. Stop. Verse 10. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Don't miss the progression in what we call biblical theology, this biblical overview of a theme. Adam and Eve were created fearing God, trusting God for their provision of the physical, of the emotional, of the spiritual. They seize the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for themselves, and in that moment, they become hyper-aware of their own vulnerability, and so they take some fig leaves thinking that will fix it. See, when they disobeyed God, fear entered the world because vulnerability entered the world, and now they're afraid of all of the things that are around them, all the things that they could do. They're afraid of this, that, and the other thing. And you could go through Genesis 3, and you could explain all, why did Eve immediately, you know, why did Adam immediately scapegoat Eve, and why did Eve immediately scapegoat onto the serpent? Because it's all about fear and vulnerability and fear and vulnerability. But God's response to their fear is he kills an animal, he gives them animal skins for clothes, and then he makes a promise called the Proto-Evangelium when he says, one day, one of your children is going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to bruise his heel, but the serpent's head is going to get crushed. And so God's response to their fear is to give promises, is to give good news that a weak, vulnerable creation can trust a strong good creator. And Abraham, now, in the picture of Abraham, we have Abraham comes full circle. He's afraid. God makes him a promise. He's afraid. God reinforces the promise. He's afraid. God reinforces the promise. And then finally, after years of doubt and trust and doubt and trust, Abraham finally trusts God and his promises more than what he sees with his own eyes, and he thinks with his own emotions, and he learns to fear God once again. And so this is the process that we saw. And you might say, that's really weird. So the way that we're rescued from our fears, our vulnerabilities, is by fearing God. Like, how does fear conquer fear? But you have to think of it like this. When you're a little kid and you're afraid of the dark, or you're afraid of spiders, right? Or you're afraid of snakes. Whatever you were afraid of as a little kid. Spiders is kind of a fun example too, but I'm using the scare of the dark. You're afraid of the dark and you're convinced there's a nightmare that lives in your closet. Just like that classic kid's book, right? There's a nightmare that lives in your closet and you wake up and what do you do? You pull your covers extra high because everybody knows if there's a murderous, destructive, borderline, nefarious villain in your closet, ain't no way he's getting through that blanket. You know what I'm saying? He's got a machete. <laughs> Good luck. Just like hiding behind a fig leaf. So you hide under your blanket, and you call for your mom, or you call for your dad, and they come in, sleepy-eyed, rubbing their eyes. And when you say, there's, a, there's something going to get me in the closet, I saw it. And what do they say to you? Don't be afraid. 
and they sit next to you, and they rub your back, and you trust them. Why do you trust them? Even though you don't extrapolate this in your brain as a little kid, the, the idea, the reason that you trust your mom or your dad in that moment over that nightmare in your closet is because inside, in your innermost being as a kid, you're scared of that nightmare, but you're more scared of your mom and dad. And you know that when push comes to shove, if something comes out of that closet, you're sure your dad can take it out. Because you have more fear of your parent. Now, fear is a strange word, but I'm trying to explain this biblical expression here. You have more fear and trust in your parent than you do have fear of whatever is in your closet. That's why you call your mom when, to crush the spider, right? Because you know that spider's bad, but you know your mom is better. And you know she can get it done and crush that spider. See, this is the same idea. The healthy fear and respect of your parents as a little kid causes you to trust in their kindness and their goodness and in their ability to slay monsters. And it gives you comfort so you can sleep soundly at night. See, sin brought fear into the world and into your life. But God's response to your fear is not to tell you to suck it up, that you're a baby. God's response to your fear is to say, do not fear. I am with you. I fight on your behalf. You don't need to fear the things of this world. You don't need to fear the unknowns. I'm your shield. I'm your strong tower. Come to me, and I will protect you. And if we believe him, if we trust him, we will come to him. And so Jesus will say, Bill, you don't need to strive. Be a be not afraid. Rest. To the worry wart, he says, you don't need to fear. I'm in control of this situation. And so we come to God and we fear him. But fearing God isn't like being afraid of the dark. It's an awe-inspiring kind of fear that ultimately leads us to wisdom. It fills us with a joy kind of fear. Just one more scripture I'm going to explain before I tie it up here. In Matthew 28, we see the resurrection happens. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. And what happens is, is the, the, the women, they go to the tomb, and it says an angel comes and rolls away the stone, and the women are there, and it says the guards were afraid, and they fall on the ground as though dead, and they basically play possum, right? And they pretend to be dead. That's what it says in Matthew. It says they were full of fear. And then the angel turns to the women, and the angel says, do not be afraid. He is risen. And then it says, the women ran away full of fear and great joy. See, because in that moment, they went from being hyper aware of their vulnerability because their supposed Messiah had been killed to realizing that he is alive, and that filled them with fear and wonder and joy that all the things he promised were true. It's a complex emotion, to say the least. See, when we fear God, we trust him, and then things fall into place. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which ultimately leads you to trust in the good news, the promises of God, which culminate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for each of you, I want you to wrestle with three questions, three questions, three questions. 
What are you most afraid of? What makes you feel the most vulnerable? That's question number one. You know, fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of being out of control. What really makes you feel vulnerable? And often when we feel vulnerable, you know what we want to do? We want to lash out like an animal. What makes you feel vulnerable? Two, how does the gospel and the promises of God address your fears? And three, since fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is by definition the knowledge of God applied in action, then how do you find wisdom in your response? The angel said to them in Luke 2.10, do not fear, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So as I was processing through all this, I realized that my biggest fear is actually a fear of failure. But the gospel says, Bill, you don't need to prove yourself because God is gracious and God is merciful, and that's good news. If that truth grabbed my heart, how differently would I live? I wouldn't be afraid of trying new things at risk of failing. I wouldn't be afraid of branching out by faith. I would enjoy the simple gifts of life instead of busying myself with all of the other things that make me feel more valuable. Resting and abiding instead of striving and worrying, all because the promises of God told me, do not be afraid. So what are you afraid of? How does the gospel address it? And how does wisdom govern your response? Jesus came. He died on a cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven. He was raised from the dead so that you could live forever. And then he sent his spirit, the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, so that you don't need to be afraid of sin, of death, of failure, of anything you'll face in this life. Because he says, fear not, I bring you good news. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to have that truth of your word sink deep into our hearts. Let us be aware of our vulnerabilities and not hide behind a wall. There's so many people who are wounded, and then rather than dealing with their wounds, they just build up calluses and they pretend that that's strength, but it's actually weakness. Because when we are weak, then you are strong. And so help us be hyper aware of our weaknesses so that we can rely more on you. We are a broken people, but you are an awesome God. And we thank you for that truth. In your name we pray. Amen.